Growing up, I became uh, uh, a fan of science fiction, uh, TV, and literature, and movies. Uh, <clears throat> I became a Trekkie early in life, and one of the other TV programs I used to watch growing up was Lost in Space. You remember that? Uh, the Adventures of the Robinson Family, and uh, the evil Dr. Smith, and the swashbuckling Major West, and then the, uh, the robot. And the thing I remember as a kid growing up, I, the, the only thing I remember that robot saying on a regular basis was, Danger, Will Robinson, danger. <clears throat> and, and every time he said that, you knew that uh, the life of young Will Robinson and the Robinson family were indeed in danger. It was a warning flag. It was, um, uh, it was something to take notice of. <clears throat> and as we come to the end of 2006 and get ready to launch into a brand new calendar year, I thought it was appropriate that we go back to our study in the book of Colossians um, to look at some warnings for the church. And, uh, and so we'll just talk... Uh, to the family here this morning from God's Word in Colossians chapter 2. Uh, we started this series back in September, a series entitled Filled with Jesus in an Empty World. Colossae was a city that uh, at one time was very prominent. It was uh, within about 100 miles of Ephesus, uh, another city that the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to and established a church in. Paul didn't start the church in Colossae, uh, it was probably started by a couple of other guys that came to Christ under Paul's ministry, uh, particularly by a guy named Epaphras. It uh, experienced an earthquake in AD 64, uh, about two years after this letter that we're studying was written. And uh, it can be divided up, it's a very short letter, only four chapters in your Bible. It can be divided up into two sections. The first section deals with the supremacy of Jesus and it focuses on what Jesus did for us in his life and his death and resurrection. <clears throat> and then the last two chapters deals primarily not with the supremacy of Christ but our submission to Jesus Christ. And it's very practical and it focuses on what Christ wants to do through us. In the church in Colossae, uh, granted, this is only about 30 years, less than 30 years after the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But in that short period of time, a couple of different ideas had crept into the church that threatened the very life and vibrancy of the gospel about Jesus Christ. One of them was this notion that there was a, a secret knowledge uh, that was only attained by a few, the, the, the really spiritual people, the, the elite, uh, the people in the know. And if you had this special knowledge, that it enabled you to grow closer to God. And it became called um, Gnosticism, which is the Greek word not, uh, gnosis, to know. There was another idea that crept into the early church, particularly in the church at Colossae, uh, that deal, dealt with this idea that the way to get close to God was to keep a certain set of rules and regulations or laws, not unlike the Old Testament uh, laws that God gave His people as they entered into the Promised Land. 
Another idea that they were struggling with was this idea that the way you get close to God was you work yourself up into some kind of spiritual experience. And you have this mystical um, uh, kind of experience that kind of takes you outside of your body and, uh, and you may need the help of angels in that process. And that's what brings you close to God. And then there was another crazy idea that said the way you really get close to God is you give up um, the normal conveniences of life, like eating or sleeping or, you know, in our day, uh, watching TV or, heaven forbid, that we would ever relinquish control of the remote. I mean, that, and it, <clears throat> it became known as asceticism. And uh, some of these approaches to getting close to God had uh, made their way into the church in Colossae. They found their beginning in uh, the very early stages of the New Testament church. In fact, if you look back at Acts chapter 15, there was this great uh, discussion in the church at Jerusalem, which was kind of the hub of Christianity early in its infancy. And uh, the Bible says in Acts 15, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so there was a discussion about does a Gentile who has not grown up uh, in the Jewish faith, who's not grown up in uh, the worship at temple, who's not um, you know, eventually would, uh, would, wouldn't have grown up in learning the scriptures in the synagogue. Does that person, can that person become a follower of Jesus um, without first adopting the ways of Judaism? Do they have to become Jewish in order to become Christian? And uh, typically that found its way out in this sign of the covenant called circumcision. circumcision. Uh, but basically they were saying you have to keep the law in order to be saved. And it goes on in that chapter to say, Now therefore, uh, here was their conclusion, Why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Uh, Peter was saying, I don't know why you want to make these Gentiles become uh, Jews in order to become Christians. We, We, who are Jewish, can't even be real Jews. I mean, we can't keep God's law. Why should we ask them to keep something that, that we can't keep? We believe that we're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. So early on in the life of the church, there began this discussion about uh, what does it take to be a Christian? What does it take to get close to God? And as Paul is writing this letter to the church in Colossae, these things are, are beginning to wreak havoc again in the life of the church. And can I tell you that... that some 2,000 years later, uh, these same ideas are prevalent in the life of the church. And, and so we need to sound a, a warning about these things in our own fellowship, in our own community of faith, that we don't find ourselves being uh, drawn away from the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. And so let's look at the three warnings that Paul gives as he writes to this uh, young church at Colossae. Uh, the first, he says, in, beginning of verse 16, is let no one judge you. He's giving a warning about legalism. Uh, he writes, Therefore let no one act as your judge in regard to food 
and, and all of us are saying after the Christmas holidays, amen to that. Or drink, or in respect to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Uh, Paul is saying uh, they were discussing issues related to diets and days. Uh, let no one judge you. Don't, don't let anyone pass judgment on you or become judgmental towards you about the things that you eat or about the days that you celebrate. Now, the diet had to do with <clears throat> their understanding of these Old Testament dietary laws that God had given His people and they were to follow as they entered into the promised land among all these nations who had, who had really turned away from God and weren't acknowledging Him at all. Uh, the other side of that coin was in, in uh, 62 A.D., uh, there were some questions about whether or not uh, these believers, these followers of Jesus, could eat meat that they had bought at the local meat market in Colossae. And you say, well, what was the problem with the meat? Was it cloned? I mean, or what, you know, what was going on with it? No, it wasn't, wasn't cloned meat. It was meat that uh, individuals had taken into a temple. Uh, it wasn't a temple to worship God. It was a temple to worship some false god. And they would take this animal into this temple to this false god, and they would offer a sacrifice to this false god. And the priests that worked in these temples to these false gods would take this meat that had been offered on this altar to a false god, and after it had been offered, they would take it, and they would take it out the back door of the temple, which just happened to be the back door of the local meat market. And so they'd place it out on the counter, and you'd walk into this meat market, and you'd be buying meat, basically, that had been offered to a false god. And some of the believers at Colossae were like, well, is it okay to eat that meat or, or not? Well, you know, if it's tough, you wouldn't want to eat it. But if it was good meat, yeah, you, you'd want to, you know, you'd want to get after it. If somebody invited you over to their house and set up, you know, a big piece of prime rib in front of you, and uh, you could say thanks to God for it, then knock yourself out. Now, if they set that piece of prime rib down in front of you and said, you know, I just went to the local uh, pagan temple, a meat market, and I bought this uh, that had been offered to this such and such a God. Uh, you might say, well, you know, thanks, but no thanks, I don't, I don't think I'll eat it. So there was a question about what could we eat or what should we eat? Well, Jesus had made a statement about food in Mark chapter 7. He, they, they were talking about uh, individuals' hearts and, and what, is it that, what is it that makes our heart impure? What is it that causes us to... Uh, be drawn away from our relationship with God. Jesus said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? In other words, what you eat doesn't make you a better person or a worse person because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. Uh, another, there's another incident about... Uh, the kinds of food that we could eat. In Acts chapter 10, Peter was having this internal struggle about his own uh, uh, beliefs and uh, philosophy about what he can eat and what he couldn't eat. And Peter being a good Jew, you know, certain things were just off limits to him. He wouldn't, wouldn't eat them. And uh, God gave him a vision in Acts chapter 10 
voice came to him and said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And again a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. Now, Peter was being prepared because there was a guy named Cornelius who was a Gentile that was about to send a messenger to come to get Peter to come and share the gospel with him. And, and Peter needed to know that God was moving in this individual's life. Paul would write to the church in Corinth, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. Well, but there were people in Colossae who were saying, well, there are certain foods that you shouldn't eat. There are certain Old Testament laws that you need to make sure that you keep in order for you to draw you closer to God. And it, it became kind of a, a standard for spirituality. They were discussing issues of days, revolved around whether they were to worship on the Sabbath or on Sunday. In the New Testament church, the early church, remember, that was a big issue. Because before the death and the resurrection of Jesus, you went to temple on Sabbath. I mean, you worshipped on Sabbath. That was on Saturday. Now... Now, Jesus is risen on the first day of the week. And so, there was a big debate. Do we go to church on Saturday or do we go to church on Sunday? I mean, what is, what's the more spiritual thing to do? And some are saying, oh, you know, the spiritual thing to do is to worship God on the Sabbath. I mean, that's what God instituted from the beginning of time. Others were saying, oh, no, if you're really a follower of Jesus, you'll go to church on Sunday because that's the day that He rose from the dead. So these dietary laws were uh, meant to remind them about the issue of purity in their heart, uh, not to be a standard for spirituality. These special days, these feasts, were to teach them about different aspects of the finished work of Jesus Christ. The Sabbath was a picture of the rest that God would lead His people into because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. They were simply, as Paul says, a shadow of the real thing. Uh, if you know anything about a shadow, you know that a shadow is less significant than the object that causes it. A shadow is only temporary. A shadow is inferior in that it imperfectly resembles the object. It's anticipatory. If you see a shadow, you know that the real thing is somewhere close by. Legalism is this idea that spirituality can be quantified by the things that we do. It becomes a breeding ground for a judgmental spirit. It shrivels the soul and robs us of the joy that Christ came to provide us. It demands uniformity and it produces a shallow surface faith because it emphasizes things which are not really important. What would legalism look like in our church today? Well, there are a couple of issues that come immediately to my mind when I think about people and, and the temptation and the tendency to become judgmental uh, towards others about certain issues. For instance, music. Uh, you know, in the church, there's this uh, uh, discussion about worship wars, you know, traditional hymn music and contemporary praise music. And, and quite frankly, some have made that a standard for spirituality. If you enjoy a certain kind of a music, then that makes you less spiritual than people who enjoy a different kind of music. And that's a legalism. And... and and God is saying, let no one judge you. Uh, don't, don't get caught up in those kinds of non-essential issues. Sometimes it, it arises over the issue of what version of the Bible you read. You know, there are people in our church, in our community of faith, who 
have this idea that if you don't read a certain version of the Bible, then, then you're not really as spiritual as other people who read other versions of the Bible. I, <clears throat> if, if you really are interested in, in, thinking, in getting all wrapped up in that issue, then you really ought to start studying Hebrew and Greek because that's the language that the Bible was originally written in. And um, if you want to study an ancient language, I would I'd encourage you to study those ancient languages, not ancient English, uh, which nobody speaks today. Uh, that's what it would look like in our church today, this idea that there's a standard that's not essential, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not you know, top-level issues of spirituality, but people raise it up. It becomes a personal preference for them. And they begin to adopt that standard not only for themselves, but for everybody else as well. I don't have the right, nor do you, to judge or compel another believer to comply with our own particular preferences on matters that are not essential to the Christian faith. We're not to judge others by these things. We're not to allow others to judge us because, quite frankly, we have found our acceptance in Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 8, Paul said, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. You see, legalism is this idea that there's something that I can do. There's some, there's some set of rules. There's some standard that I can live by that would cause me to be more acceptable to God. The gospel of Jesus Christ says there's absolutely nothing that you can do that will make you more acceptable than you have already been made by the finished work of Jesus Christ. Uh, We've been accepted in the Beloved. We've been accepted because of the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let no one judge you. There's a second warning that Paul sounds in this passage, and it's found in verse 18 and 19. Let no one disqualify you. And here he gives a warning about mysticism. Let no one keep defrauding you. Literally, let no one disqualify you. And the picture is of an umpire who is calling somebody out of bounds or um, uh, an incomplete pass or um, a foul ball in, in baseball. Let no one keep defrauding you of the prize by delighting. How were they doing that? They were delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. There was this false humility about this um, mystical approach to Christianity. They would say, oh, I'm not worthy to be in the presence of God. I'm not worthy to be close to God. That's why I need the assistance of these heavenly beings. I need the assistance of angels. And they would claim to have special visions. Uh, And here's how it sounds today. People will say, uh, uh, you'll hear this. Uh, God's given me a word for you. Really? And, and then they proceed to tell you. I had a pastor years ago uh, say, I, I have a word from you. Uh, and uh, the word was, um, 
that my church was going to send me to Hawaii. That was his word for me. Now, I got close. I got to the Bahamas, but uh, wasn't exactly to Hawaii. Uh, I, God has a word for you. Uh, the Lord has shown me this is what we need to do. Really? Well, you know, if it doesn't agree with Scripture, I'm pretty sure the Lord didn't show you that. Somebody else may have shown you that, but it didn't come from the Lord. There was this um, movement in Judaism that came to be known as Merkaba mysticism. The Merkaba refers to Ezekiel chapter 1, the throne chariot of God that Ezekiel saw. And the teaching spoke of days of fasting to prepare for a journey to the heavens to see God and have a vision of Him and His angelic host in worship. One could withdraw and eventually go directly into God's presence. And so this false teaching emphasized the humility of ascetic practice, visions, rigors of devotion, treating the body harshly, rules about what should not be eaten and what days should be observed. And all this activity was aimed to help prepare individuals for the experience that took them beyond what Jesus had already provided. And that, that's, that, that, anytime you hear that, anytime you hear somebody say, well, you know, I, I've got something else than what Jesus initially gave me, that red flags ought to go up, sirens ought to go on, a warning ought to be sounded, because what they're saying is that Jesus is not enough in your life. What they're saying is there's something else that God's holding out on you. God has not given you His best. By the way, that is the lie that began in the Garden of Eden. Has God said? God's holding out on you. God knows that if you eat, you'll be like Him, knowing the difference between good and evil. And people still say that same lie today. But here's what they're saying. Oh, when you got saved, God didn't give you everything that He intended for you to have. There is an additional blessing that God... There's, there is additional favor that God wants you to experience. What they're doing is they're buying into this idea of mysticism, that there's some experience that we can have that makes us closer to God and, and um, more spiritual in our relationship to God. Uh, it's the spirituality of Car people like Carlos Santana. Now, many of you will not know Santana. He won eight Grammy Awards for his album Supernatural several years ago. And in a Rolling Stone profile, uh, here's how they describe his spirituality. His meditation spot is in front of a fireplace. A card with the word Metatron is spelled out in intricately printed, uh, painted picture letters lies on the floor next to the fireplace. Metatron is an angel. Santana has been in regular contact with him since 1994. Carlos will sit here facing the wall, the candles lit. He has a yellow legal pad at one side, ready for the communications that will come. It's kind of like, like a fax machine, he says. There are few conversations with Santana that don't lead to discussion of angels or of the spiritual radio through which music comes. Santana has been increasingly engaged by angels since the day in 1988 when he picked up a book on the subject at the Milwaukee airport. Be careful what you pick up in airport terminals. Here's what he says. My reality is that God speaks to you every day. Now, just how close to the truth does that sound? Uh, pretty close, doesn't it? I, you know, I believe God speaks to us 
Every day. God wants to communicate because God wants to have a relationship with us. You can't have a relationship without communication. There's an inner voice and when you hear it, you get a little tingle in your medulla oblongata at the back of your neck. A little shiver in your quiver. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, everything's really quiet, and you meditate, and you got the candles, and you got the incense, and you've been chanting, and all of a sudden you hear this voice. Write this down. It's just an inner voice. Trust it. That voice will never take you to the desert. Santana credit, credits Metatron with alerting him to the recent changes in his life. You know, I don't, I don't know whether or not Santana has been in communication with an angel or not. My, my real question is, what kind of angel is it? Because you know there's not just good angels. Right? You know that, don't you? You see, this kind of approach to getting close to God won't work. And it won't work for a couple of reasons. First of all, Paul says it's disconnected. It's lost its connection, he says, in verse 19, to the head. Now, who's he referring to? Well, throughout the New Testament, whenever he refers to the head in his letters, he's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church. This kind of mystical experience where you're looking for some kind of ecstatic experience that draws you closer to God won't get you closer to God because it's not connected to Jesus Christ. And it will only result in spiritual starvation. And the cure for it is to stay connected to Christ. Jesus said it like this in John 15, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that he bears, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. Stay connected to me as I am connected to you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I, uh, I don't need to be disqualified. I don't need to miss out on the prize that I've received in Jesus Christ. And the way I don't get out of bounds is I stay connected with Christ. And I suspect that as long as our church this coming year stays connected to the head of the body, we stay true to Jesus Christ, we stay close to Him, then, um, then this body will grow as God intends for it to grow. There's a third warning that he sounds in verses 20 to 23. Let no one enslave you. And here's a warning about asceticism. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees? Why do you allow yourself to be enslaved to these man-made ideas and philosophies? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. By the way, what does that sound like? What does it remind you of? Anything? Does it remind you of a statement that somebody else made? Remember when Eve was tempted by Satan in the garden? She says, oh, from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. The only problem was God never said that. And so, so, you know, <clears throat> Satan is a cunning being. He's not very creative. Uh, the, the, the same temptations that he used in the garden, he's still using today. 
thousands of years later. There's nothing new. He's not, he doesn't have to come up with a new scheme. The truth of the matter is, we still keep, we still keep biting at the old ones. Oh, yeah, God, we can't do that. We're not supposed to do that. Don't touch that. Don't taste that. Don't handle that. Which all refer to things destined to perish with the using in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion. It sounds good. I mean, it even sounds spiritual, doesn't it? You've heard some of the things people say, some of the TV preachers. Uh, it, it sounds so logical. It sounds so appropriate. It sounds so holy. And self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. There's this preoccupation with the world. Don't handle this. Don't taste this. Don't touch that. Don't do that. And sometimes... One of the things that turn people off from Christianity is they get this idea that Christianity is only about the things that you can't do. Can I tell you that that kind of Christianity is a, is a joyless Christianity. That kind of Christianity will suck the life right out of your relationship with Jesus Christ. You end up living by the world's standards. You see, asceticism is this idea that I can get close to God on my terms by my own strength. And God says, no, that's not the way you get close to me. Denying the body, its desires only arouses them. Ever gone on a diet? For instance, you say, you know, I need to cut back on fried foods. Let's just say in 2007, we're all going to make a resolution. No more fried foods. We're not going to eat fried foods at all in 2007. Right now, I've got a hankering for cheesy fries from Outback. Or chicken fried chicken smothered in gravy with a side of mashed potatoes smothered in gravy with some fried okra. Yeah? Or how about let's go on a low-carb diet. Let's say we're not going to eat bread. How can you do that? How can you not eat bread? You go anywhere in the world. You know, everything on the menu comes with bread. Wonderful bread. Why is it that the minute we say, ah, oh, I'm not going to eat these things, those are the only things we ever want. It's called, it's called human nature. You see, neglecting the body isn't the way to nourishment, nourishing the spirit. It only leads to a life of enslavement. True freedom is found in my identity with Jesus Christ. And that's what he's referring to in these verses when he talks about our death with Christ. Paul said it like this in Romans 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound or increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin live, still live in it? 
Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? We've been identified with His death. Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. When you become identified with a person, you get what they get. They get what you have. That's identification. When I became identified with Jesus, when I placed my faith in Him, I, He got what I had to offer, which, by the way, was not much. I got what He had to offer, which was eternal life. It was forgiveness. It was peace. A home in heaven. Uh, membership in the forever family of God. And so when we make Jesus and, and the teachings of the gospel only a part of our total religious system or the way we live our lives, we cease to give Him the preeminence, the supremacy that He deserves. When we strive for spiritual perfection or spiritual fullness by means of some set of standards or some mystical experience or some um, ascetic lifestyle, We go backward instead of forward. In all things, Jesus must have the supremacy in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these reminders today, these words of warning as we enter 2007, that in this body of believers, that we would be delivered from that judgmental spirit that wants to uh, impose our own personal preferences on the spirituality of others. Uh, Deliver us from this notion that there is something else that we need that we haven't received from you uh, because, because the Scriptures teach us that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. Deliver us from this notion that there is some, um, um, even some sacrifice that we could make that would draw us closer to you when it only serves to feed the flesh and the desires of the flesh that you sent your Son to die to to free us from. Uh, Thank you that in all things Jesus Christ may have the preeminence in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.